This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello. Hello. Uh, Welcome back to Death by Southwest, the podcast where each week I share a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest while my sister and co-host tries to piece together the clues and unravel the mystery behind each of these heinous crimes. I'm your host, Margo. And I'm Jenna. And we are here recording episode 17. I like that number. I like that number too. I think I like odd numbers. Yeah, I like five's my favorite number. Mm. I don't mind nine. I don't mind 11 or 13 either. I really like 11. Oh, okay, good. All right, now that we got that numbers <laughs> conversation out of the way, we can move on to talk about today's episode, where we are adventuring into the heart of Yosemite National Park to explore the gruesome murder of Joie Ruth Armstrong, a 26-year-old naturalist who was murdered while working in the park. And in this episode, we're going to explore the details of her death, the disturbing motives of her killer, and the broader implications for the safety of those who work and play in America's national parks. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Joie. How do you spell that? Joie. J-O-I-E. French? I think so. But she's born in Germany, but I'm going to get there. Oh, sorry. That's okay. (laughs) Say her name again. Joie. Joie. Ruth Armstrong. And so we have another national park one. I know there are actual podcasts like on murders in national parks or mm-hmm. park predators or things like that. That's not this, but it is National Park Week next month and Earth Day. And it just, I kind of got into the whole national park thing. So when I came across this, I thought, you know, let's let's go with it. Let's, let's do another do one. Let's do it. Yeah. I've been told by Brandon and I think by you before, like, you don't need to classify things or qualify things mm. before you do them. Like, like you know, how? Like, I want to, what I want to say is this is a very layered story. There are a lot of moving pieces, a lot of stories within stories. It's probably one of the more intricate ones that we've had, which makes me a little bit nervous, truthfully. But if I was talking to Brandon, he would probably say, well, don't say that. Like just just jump in. Just jump in. Just do it and just like be confident in it and don't, don't give people a reason to doubt you before you actually do it. I mean, I hear what you both are saying, I guess, but um, maybe it doesn't contribute to people doubting you. It's just people, it's like you giving people a heads up. Also, it sounds like this is going to be, you said like a murder within a murder or a story within a story. It's like Inception. Yes. Like the Inception National Park edition. Yes. If you could see my notes, you would feel like you were in Hmm. Inception because they are intense and intricate. So take that for what it is. I'm going to do my best to keep this really concise and in in a somewhat straight line, but I feel like this line zigzags all over Yosemite. So Hmm. we'll see. The other thing is that I said to Mark, like, oh, our episode today is in Yosemite. He's like, "Mm, is Yosemite really the Southwest? Mm. And I said, you know what? Probably no. If you're just talking about the location of of Yosemite, probably not. I came across this and I was like, oh, I'm not sure that's Southwest. And then I, I managed to find some things that confirmed that it could be Southwest because I looked up like 
southwestern um, national parks or road trip through the south southwest national parks and yosemite yeah. was always included so i was like uh, it's southwestern ish for our purposes well sure it's a national park edition and of all the however many i know you told me last episode and i cannot recall 63. 60 something yeah of all the national parks this one could be or is considered southwestern southwest yeah ish and so we're for our purposes, we're I'm saying all, it's southwest. Be confident, it's southwest. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that is where our story takes place today. Yosemite. Yosemite. So last time we did kind of broad national park trivia, we did a lot. I cut a lot because we did it a lot. It was long. I felt like it was long. It was long, yes. Yeah. So today we're gonna we're just gonna focus on Yosemite. Do you know anything about Yosemite? I know it's in California. It is. It That's is basically it. Yeah, it's located in California's Sierra Nevada mountains and covers an area of 1,200 square miles or approximately 747,956 acres. I know. 740,000 mm-hmm. acres. That's three-fourths of a million acres. Yes, Holy it is. moly. Yes. It's big. It. There you go. It's big. And... Yosemite was the first land set aside by the U.S. government for preservation and public use in 1864. It was not the first national park. Do you remember what that is? Because you got that trivia question right last time. I think TV show. Oh, um, Yellowstone. Yes. Yes. So Yosemite is the third, apparently, national park. It's located on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains, which are known for their geological instability and frequent seismic activity. The park actually sits on several major earthquake faults and experiences hundreds of small earthquakes each year. It attracts over 4 million visitors each year. On average, um, in 2020, there was 2.27 million visitors and in 2021, 3.3 million visitors. Well, think about 2020. That was the height of COVID. Right. And there's still that many people. Yeah, a lot. I mean, if you're going to go somewhere, I guess Yosemite seem seemingly is a good place. I don't know depending on how many people were around you, but still. The highest point in Yosemite is Mount Lyell, which is 13,114 feet above sea level. And the weather in Yosemite tends to be quite variable. It can be hot, cold, dry, rainy, or snowy. So the highest point is 13 plus thousand feet. Mm -hmm. I was going to say what's like the average elevation, but maybe there isn't. I mean, sure, we could get the mean the average, ooh, good callback to last episode. The average elevation in Yosemite is around 7,000 feet. Okay. But it ranges across the whole park from 2,000 feet to 13,000 feet cool. at the summit of Mount Lyell. Do you want to guess what year Yosemite became a national park? 1864? Oh, not bad. 1890. October oh. 1st, 1890. Oh, 1864 is when they like designated the land. You said something, it was like the third national park. Okay. It's when the U.S. government set that land aside for preservation. Got it. I'm going to share some facts about Yosemite, and I'll see if I can turn any of these into trivia for you. Mm. Yosemite is home to some of the tallest waterfalls in North America, including the iconic Yosemite Falls, which drops a total of blank feet. Give me a guess, and that's such a broad question. What do you Um, think? 5,000. Half of that. 2,500. Yeah, 2,425 feet. Okay. okay. Moving on. <laughs> uh, the park is also home to some of the world's largest granite cliffs, including El Capitan, which rises 3,000 feet above the valley floor. And do you know what El, Ca- El Capitan is popular for or with who? Climbers. Um, off rope climb. Well, maybe rope climbers too, but I think for a while it's straight faced, yes. right? So like non-belay climbers or I don't know. Yes. Free yes. climbers. Yes, you're Jesus. absolutely right. Yeah, it is very popular with rock climbers. Um, you can scale part of it using ropes and specialized equipment, but there are parts of it apparently where you where it's not possible to use any equipment at all. And you just have to... Free climb, I guess. Yeah, free climb it. Yeah, There's exactly. nowhere to hook into. Right, exactly. Oh, well, yeah. also, Terrifying. That reminds it, me of that... Um, What was that movie that we both watched? The Alpinist? Alpinist? Yeah, it's a... I mean, it's kind of like a docu-movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy that died. Yeah, that was great. For anybody who hasn't seen that, that's on Netflix. And it's really... I'm not a huge document... You don't... You're not big on documentaries. I like them if they're good, but it... Oh. it <laughs> <laughs> wow, shocking. I like them when they're bad. 
All right. That's true. I do like a documentary. I'm, I'm particular. But it's not your favorite thing. Yeah, I'm particular. Uh, this was a great one. The Alpinist. Alpinist. So Yosemite is also home to some of the oldest living organisms on Earth, including the great sequoias, which can live for over 3,000 years. Trees. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Also home to over 400 species of animals, including black bears, mountain lions, bighorn sheep. There's a ton of rare plant and animal species, including the Sierra Nevada red fox, which is one of the rarest mammals in North America. It's also home to over 20 species of dangerous or venomous animals. Snakes. Rattlesnakes. What else? Scorpions. Probably. I only have a few listed. Spiders. Black widow spiders, mm. uh, mountain lions, and black bears. Mountain lions and black bears aren't poisonous. They're just killers. No, dangerous or venomous. Oh, yeah. or. Okay, yeah. thank you. How many black bears, if you had to just take a random guess, there's no way to calculate exactly how many black bears yeah. are the what the population is in Yosemite. But if you could estimate, as people do. I don't know, a couple thousand? Ooh, no. Oh. Between 300 to 500 black bears living in the park. And it's home to one of the largest black bear populations in California, um, meaning that visitors are often warned to take precautions to avoid attracting bears, such as storing food and trash properly and keeping a safe distance. I would love to see a bear. I know, I wouldn't, but I would. Are you like that cocaine bear girl who's all, I've always wanted to see a bear. No, I just, you know, I've had like, we've talked about this. Of course it'd be awesome. I have like a weird recurring dream about bears. Bears have always been a weird thing for me. I'd like to see them from a distance. I guess I'd rather see them up close, but know I'm safe, which doesn't exist. Right. Yosemite was inspiration for many creatives over the years, famous creatives, writers, photographers, things like that. Any Anybody you can think of come to mind? I would not know this. Krakow. No. Huh? Who the fuck is Krakow? An author. Oh, no. Okay, wait. Let me think again then. Authors and creatives. Painters, that- photographers. Oh, Ansel Adams. Yes. Many of the paintings of famed artist Ansel Adams were inspired by Yosemite, who spent much of his career photographing and documenting the park's natural beauty. Okay, but that confuses me, because he's a photographer. He is a photographer, but he also apparently did some paintings. Oh, okay. He painted off his photos. I think so. Oh, wow. That's information I found. Don't quote me on it. I don't think I can say that on a podcast, actually. I'm automatically quoted on it. Well, sure. And the other one was John Muir, a Scottish naturalist, writer, and conservationist who was instrumental in the creation of Yosemite National Park. His love of the wilderness led him to be one of the most influential conservationists of his time, and he was a founding member of the Sierra Club, and his writing and activism helped to establish Yosemite as a national park in 1890. Well, also, Muir Woods, been there. Beautiful. That's the one where we have the picture of Mark, Michael, and I in... Michael's wearing a suit as we're walking through the mirror woods. That sounds appropriate. That sounds right on bar. <laughs> so Yosemite is one of the few places in the U.S. where you can see a blank at night. A blank at night. Is it? Okay, give me, let's hone in on the clue. Like, is it okay. up in the sky? Like, mm-hmm. like oh, it could be in the sky. It, it's cosmic-esque. Where you colorful. Can, oh, where you can see the Aurora Borealis. <laughs> Aurora Borealis. <laughs> No, but I really like that mm-hmm, Colorful. A rainbow? Yeah. But at night, you said. Yes. You can see a night rainbow. A lunar rainbow or moonbow, it's called. What? I've never heard of that. Yeah. Uh, Yosemite is world famous for its waterfalls and the rainbows that can appear in them. But very few people know about the park's lunar rainbows or moonbows. In the spring and early summer, if the sky is clear and the moon is full, it can produce enough light to create a rainbow from waterfalls mist and it looks like pure magic oh spring to early summer i gotta get out there yeah it's gonna be early summer soon yes it is how many people do you think die in yosemite every year five that might be too big of an estimate but i'm gonna go with 500 ish per year that is far too big of an estimate, but I like it. <laughs> Around 12 to 15 people die in the park annually due to a variety of causes, which we talked about last time, falls, yep. drownings, natural causes. What, if you could name the top five activities to do in Yosemite, what would you think they are? God, I don't know a lot about Yosemite. Like, So my first thought is climbing, hiking, camping, um, canoeing. Uh, what like rafting mm-hmm. um what about yeah. um driving uh <laughs> viewing Probably. viewing visualizing yeah um, no jumping you're right. and flying you're right hiking 
is number one. Yosemite has over 800 miles of hiking trails. Uh, Rock climbing, famous for its granite cliffs, which attract rock climbers from around the world. Camping, there are 13 campgrounds with over 1,400 campsites. Wildlife watching, you said looking, so I feel like that's similar. Oh, photography? Maybe that's linked. Sure, I think that'd probably go under that category. Water activities. Yosemite has several rivers and lakes, so you can swim, fish, and kayak, or raft. And then also winter sports. During the winter months, visitors can ski, snowboard, and snowshoe Mm. in Yosemite's ski area, which is called Badger Pass. And then there's a ton of different ranger-led educational programs, stargazing, guided hikes, things like that. Probably stuff around like edible plants. Sure. I'm sure. Educational, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Please. What's the, of the facts and info you provided in this sense of place um, section, what do you find most interesting? None of it, really. I mean, I guess probably the rainbows, I think, is super cool. I I mean, the bears, the bears and the rainbows, that Mm -hmm. stands out as number one to me. That feels like a terrible answer, but really, yeah, the bears. I don't think think there is a terrible answer. Yeah. And I did look up about places around Yosemite, yeah. around Yosemite, and, and none of the cities or towns and were that fascinating for me to really deep dive and find more trivia. You know, the closest city is Mariposa, which is about 33 miles west of of the park's Arch Rock entrance. It's a small town with a population of 2,000 people. The closest major city is Fresno, which is about 70 miles away. But I feel like that's it's like over an hour away. Yeah, it's too far away to really like be relevant. Well, it's interesting though because I've I mean, I want to go to any and all national parks. Sure. I'd really love to go to Monument Valley. And also, there is literally nowhere to stay. I get Yosemite if you're going, you're probably camping. Right. Or just going for a long day trip. I guess it encourages camping in because there's not... Lodging. Lodging near. So that's so interesting you brought that up because it's super relevant to today's story. Also to Yosemite because Yosemite actually is one of the national parks that offers several budget-friendly accommodations from, well, actually from budget-friendly to luxurious lodges in the park. Are we going to talk about luxurious ones? Well, we we can. Well, we will later. (laughs) So today we are, we're talking about the murder of Joie, Ruth Armstrong. She was born December 20th, 1972 in Germany, but raised in California. She went to Cal State University in Chico and graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Parks and Natural Resource Management. And she worked with a lot of different environmental organizations. She was she was huge into nature, the environment, the outdoors. It was that was her passion. That was like who she was. And so she worked with a lot of environmental organizations through college but actually began her career once she graduated with the National Audubon Society. She became consumed with coastal birding, and she spent a year in the Sierra Foothills working for the Stanislaus Office of Education's Outdoor School. She eventually joined the Yosemite Institute, which today is called Nature Bridge, but back then it was called the Yosemite Institute, and she worked teaching school children who would come and visit the park, groups from from schools of... uh, of children about the park's ecology and wildlife. Cool. Um, she was known for her enthusiasm and her ability to inspire others with her love of nature. And a quote from her says, my passion lies with teaching children about their environment and I've dedicated all of my efforts towards it. Her friends and family described her as kind, compassionate, adventurous person who loved hiking, camping, and spending time outdoors. She was said to be someone who helped to make the world a better place and inspire others to be courageous and follow their dreams. I like her. Yeah, she was. She seemed like a little kind of. And this, I'm, I'm insinuating here, but she seemed a little hippie-ish, a little granola-ish, which I love. I mean that in a loving way, not a derogatory way. At the time of her death, she was dating Michael Raffelli, who also worked for the Yosemite Institute. Uh, they lived together in a cabin, kind of. For people who worked for Yosemite Institute, there was an area of like thirty cabins where employees could live and work. And she lived with him. The cabin had no electricity. I don't even think it had running water. Like they had to go fetch water from a nearby stream. But apparently they were very happy. And one of her friends from high school, Kim Fox, said that she really believed that they would eventually get married and that Joie called him the love of her life. 
I don't even know if I've said the date. This took place in 1999. She was murdered in 1999. Yeah, I was going to ask that because you said at the time of her death, she was dating him. I know she was born in 72. So in 99, she was what, 27? Okay, 26, yeah. Yeah. So this took place, place in 99. So, you know, internet was just coming about at that time. So I did find some actual like newspaper articles online that I was able to to pull, but not a ton, a ton more information about her than that. But that's a good good snapshot. Yeah. Yeah. So when she was murdered, she was 26 years old. It was the summer of 1999 and she was living and working in Yosemite National Park for the Outdoor Education Program, Yosemite Institute. And she was considered a naturalist. And as summer was coming to a close, one of Joie's friends at the time, Heather Sullivan, another naturalist in the program, recalls saying her goodbyes to Joie until they returned to work the following summer. Heather had plans to spend that year becoming an alpine guide in Alaska, while Joie planned on sticking around the park. Heather was quoted as saying, it was a long, drawn-out goodbye. She made me all these things, including a cake. Our promise was that upon my return, I would teach her how to rock climb, and she would teach me how to balance rocks. Maybe to make those Karens. So I had to look that up. I was like, to balance rocks? Oh, is it not that? What's the point of that? So apparently balancing rocks is something that Joie did with her students. I did find something that said, since this, like since 99, balancing rocks there has been some question about how that disturbs and upsets the environment and it's not not a good thing to do anymore so this isn't like the trail marking karens that we talk about it's essentially like that but she did it for a different reason so she would show her students how to stack a bunch of rocks on top of each other explaining that the tower of rocks wasn't meant to stand forever it wasn't meant to be super sturdy it was on purpose, not permanent, but they would work hard to try and find out how to place the rocks, how to get it to stand up and not fall down. And after building these tire, these towers, she would instruct students to place the rocks back where they had originally been found. And the goal was that she was trying to kind of teach them the process of the importance of building something and, and not even necessarily something physical. It was kind of like a metaphor for, for just life. Building something can be hard. It can be frustrating. It can fall down. You can try, you can have to try different things, arrange it in different ways. But once you finally get that built, it feels so rewarding Hmm. It's like try, try again. Yeah. There's not one way to do things. Right. And so it was kind of a, a life lesson that she taught in a with a physical activity. And, and she loved teaching her students that. So on July 21st, 1999, Joie was loading some plants and other belongings into her truck and preparing to take a visit to some of her friends who lived in Sausalito. But little did she know she was being watched this whole time that she was loading up these belongings. A man had parked his blue and white 1979 International Scout, your favorite car, I know, in front of the Yosemite cabin where Joie lived. And he sat there watching her load up her car. When Joie never arrived in Sausalito, her friends got worried and reported her missing. And police began searching the area near her cabin for where she was, what may have happened to her. They found her car parked in front of her cabin, packed and ready to go for the trip, but no joie. Unfortunately, the search quickly ended the next day when rangers uncovered joie's headless body near a stream about a half a mile from her cabin. Her head was later discovered in the water several feet downstream. So, her body. Her body. She was decapitated. I have questions, but I'm sure you'll answer many of them. It's going to take a while to get there, That's but I fine. will. Yeah. So members of the Yosemite's outdoor community, like all the people she worked with, obviously, particularly particularly the women, were, were frightened. They were afraid to be in the park and outside in their own community. One of Joie's friends was quoted as saying, a lot of us mountain people are really shaken up. I was supposed to be teaching eighth grade girls how to backpack, and I don't even want to go into the backcountry myself at this moment. I could understand that. Absolutely. Before we get deeper into Joie's story, mm-hmm. we're going to flash back a few months to earlier that year in February of 1999. Okay. Okay. Because as it turns out, 1999 was a pretty deadly year for Yosemite. Oh. And Joie's murder was not the first to occur in the park. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches So on February 12th, 1999, a woman named Carol Sund, who is 42, and her 15-year-old daughter, Julie, both from Stockton, and Silvina Peloso, a 16-year-old exchange student from Argentina that had been staying with the Sund family for several weeks, left their home for a vacation in Yosemite hoping to make Sylvina's visit an extremely memorable one. Mm. The three first stopped at the University of the Pacific so Julie could participate in a cheerleading competition before heading to Cedar Lodge in El Portal, located in Yosemite's western slope. Carol was very familiar with Yosemite, apparently, and she usually stayed inside the park, but this time she decided to book a room at the Cedar Lodge Motel, located just barely outside the perimeter of the park, a decision that would ultimately have horrific consequences. The three ladies arrived at the inn early on February 14th and spent the day kind of getting settled and settling into the lodge. And on February 15th, they woke up and went hiking, taking in all the wonders of the park. That evening, they returned back to the lodge, rented a few movies from the service desk to watch in their room. Oh, 99. Yeah. VHS probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we won't know if they ever got to see those movies because none of them were ever seen alive again. All three of them? All three of them. What? Housekeeping said that the next morning when they went to clean the room, there were no signs of foul play or any issue at all, really. Checkout had been done in advance. They were really only planning to stay for like two days. And they they had left the keys on the desk in the room. The room looked normal, neat. Mm. Nothing was wrong. And Carol, Julie, and... Sylvina were supposed to meet Carol's husband at the airport and then continue on to Phoenix. So they were all going to go to Arizona. Carol's husband had a meeting or something there. I think Carol and her husband were both um, pretty pretty successful real estate agents. So he had some type of meeting in Phoenix. And, you know, Carol was going to take the girls, meet, them, meet him there. But the ladies never showed up at the airport. Uh, her husband assumed, eh, maybe she caught an earlier flight, a later flight. I'm going to go ahead and get on my flight and I'll meet them in Phoenix. It'll be fine. Mm. Remember, this is kind of pre-cell phones a little bit. Cell phones are just coming out. Car phones are a big thing. Well, and even, the, well, 99, I mean, yeah, I don't really recall. So, yeah, probably not. And even if they are out, they're not what they are today. People think they sh- should get in contact with someone, be able to get in contact anytime, all the time. Day or night, yeah. Right, and that's because everyone everyone just assumes your phone is in your hand. If you're not answering me, you're purposefully ignoring me. Nobody thinks you left your phone in another room. Which honestly, sometimes I the other day I left my phone. You know, sometimes I have to park at the guest parking at Marks. I left my phone in my leave it. I left my phone in my car, and I thought I should go get it. And then I thought I'm not going to go get it for a while. Like I don't. I don't have any meetings on the uh, phone. Meet. I have nothing that I have to be on the phone with someone. I'm not going to get it. And I'm just going to sit here and do my work and be with the dogs and and not worry about who's calling me. And it was one of the most kind of freeing moments. Oh, I actively encourage people to take time off the phone, put it in a drawer, turn it to silent, turn it off. Yep. So Carol's husband kind of, you know, there, there wasn't that kind of communication expectation that there is today. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So he just assumed maybe they got an earlier flight, a later flight, we'll connect in Phoenix. But when he still later that evening or the next morning, unclear, hadn't heard from his wife, she wasn't in Phoenix, he called the police. 
And the police discovered that their rental car, a 99 Pontiac Grand Prix, had never been returned to the rental company. Oh. So Yosemite police began searching the area where Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were last seen. And initially they thought, you know what? Maybe this is a simple case of like they wandered off. They went off the trail. They got lost. Missed their flight. Right. Like they got lost in the woods and missed their flight. We'll find them. Hmm. But days went by and... Authorities had nothing, no sign of them, nothing, had no idea what happened. And then suddenly Carol's wallet showed up on a random side street in Modesto, California. How far is Modesto? So Modesto is about 80 to 100 miles from Yosemite, depending on what entrance or exit you go out of. So about an hour plus. But the weird thing was, is that the money and license and car, everything was in the wallet. It was like someone had just like tossed it out. That's a, I mean, that's something concerning, right? When someone leaves. Yes. Not leaves, but the whole wallet's found. Yes. It was so concerning that the FBI got involved, which they generally will because even though we don't know what happened yet, something happened potentially on federal ground, which means Ah. the FBI gets involved. Okay. So the FBI got involved and and was immediately suspecting this might be something bigger than just a case of lost hikers. And after a month of searching for Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, they were found. The burned bodies of Carol and Sylvina, the exchange student, were discovered in the trunk of a charred rental car about 40 miles north of Yosemite. And Shortly after this was found, officials received an anonymous handwritten letter on a sheet of notebook paper. The letter contained a single taunting phrase along with a map leading police to the body of Julie. I don't know what the phrase was. Never found that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was dying to know. I really wanted to have that for you. I couldn't find it. But there was a map that supposedly led them to the body of, of Julie Carroll's daughter. I was more going to ask, do you have a picture of the map? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Wow. Initially, there were no real leads on this. There was not a ton of evidence. The car had been, been burned out. Where they found Julie's body, not far from the car, there wasn't, there wasn't tire marks. There wasn't blood. There wasn't really anything. It's like these crimes had been committed elsewhere and then these bodies had been put in these places. To maybe throw something off. Right. And like, why was her wallet found in Modesto? Modesto. It was just very confusing. So everyone who worked at the lodge and in the park were interviewed. Everyone who was staying in the in where the, where Julie and Carol and Sylvina were staying, yeah. they were interviewed. Everyone around that area who worked in the park was interviewed. Everyone who could have come in contact or interacted or were there during similar days, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yes. And one person in particular, so everyone was interviewed, but there was one person, a handyman at the lodge named Carrie Stainer. And he was interviewed and police thought there was something maybe a little off, but there was really nothing concrete. There was nothing concrete about anyone. He, Carrie and several other um, specific employees were all, were all interviewed as many as three times by authorities, but they couldn't link any of these people to to these crimes. So he Carrie Stainer was an employee. Yeah, he of was a handyman, no of of the lodge uh, where Carol was staying. Yeah. Thank you. And so eventually the FBI thought, well, let's look into people around where her wallet was found because maybe somebody took her wallet and and lives in that area but dropped it on their way somewhere. So once they started looking into this area in Modesto, apparently Modesto is known to be not a great area. Oh, yeah, and I don't know about Modesto. I don't either. Um, and it, and it's this specific area was known a known place for convicted sex offenders, drug dealers, gang members to kind of reside. That was just kind of what it was known for. So the police began going door to door, rounding up potential suspects, convicted sex offenders, career criminals, even a man who reportedly gave what they later determined was false, but confessed to the killings. He was apparently on drugs and said, I did it. I did it. Uh, he didn't. Right. But, you know, he was taken into custody and they have to interrogate. Check it out, of, of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But it seemed for a moment the police kind of felt like with all of these career criminals and people who are involved in, in, in unlawful activity, 
one of these people did it. And we're bringing them all in. So like, we've got this. In the news, there were ongoing reports that the prime suspects were part of a criminal enclave in Modesto. Uh, Authorities were assuring the public that the suspects were in custody for unrelated crimes, but they were going to connect those unrelated crimes to these murders. Okay. So, th- so the public is starting to feel like safer. Like, okay, they've got them. They, they have a, a they path. Have, yeah. They know it's one of these people. Maybe they don't know how yet, but they're sure. going to connect it. But in actuality, the killer had done such a meticulous job of carrying out these murders and covering his tracks that eventually FBI investigators soon realized they'd been chasing down false leads for months and they were no closer to catching this killer. Ooh, now I wonder if the person who was or persons who were the killer or was the killer intentionally made false leads or not. You don't have to say anything. I can't say anything, but I really like where your brain's going. So it wasn't actually until Joie's, I hate to say this, it feels graphic, but Joie's beheaded body was recovered that police finally became suspicious of someone that would ultimately lead to justice for all four of these women. And that someone on police's radar was Carrie Stainer, the handyman the at the lodge. Yes. You said it in a very like general way. Like, so does that mean he did it or he's going to be the key to let them know who did it? I can't answer that, but I can answer and tell you a little bit about who Carrie Stainer was. And this story is a doozy. Carrie was from a family made up of two brothers, three sisters, and their parents, Kay and Delbert. So they lived uh, in the farming town of Mer- Merced or Merced. I want to say Merced, California. I think that right, yeah. uh, a place that's often called the Gateway to Yosemite, which is a lookup list because yeah. I don't know why. Well, it's probably right outside of Yosemite, I imagine. <laughs> it could be as simple as that. You're right. Carrie was a clean-cut, handsome man who worked at the motel near the park. He was outdoorsy. He was considered a reliable employee, according to the Cedar Lodge manager, Gerald Fisher. Gerald was quoted as saying that Carrie was quick to step up to the task at hand. He also said, I mean, if you had a problem, Carrie would be right there. In his free time, Carrie enjoyed hanging out at a local swimming hole. He also enjoyed frequenting a nudist colony in the park. One woman who knew him well, and her name was Sunshine Good Morning. Did she hang out at the nudist colony? She did. (laughs) So swimming hole? Isn't it watering? Oh, you literally mean a swimming hole. Yeah, swimming hole. I was thinking a watering (laughs) hole, like the local water. Okay. Yeah, like an actual swimming hole. Got it. Him and her went swimming. Apparently, they enjoyed going skinny dipping together on a regular basis. Carrie and Sunshine, good morning. Sunshine described Carrie as a perfectly harmless guy, saying, I knew him for years. I hang out at the river with him, sometimes alone, sometimes with friends, but more often alone. He never hit on me, and he never hit on any of my friends. She I thought mean, he was like a super nice, sweet guy. That's, uh, I don't know where this is going. Sure. But I sense you're going somewhere and also of like. Of I am. Well, we'll find out. We will. But yes, Sunshine thought he was harmless. Most people that he worked with thought he was a very nice, quiet, outdoorsy, kind of loner guy. Handsome guy. Kept to himself a lot. How old was he? At the time of all this in 99, he was 37. So he was born in 1961. Before we get into this next part, we want to give a quick warning that this contains discussions about sensitive topics, especially sexual assault. We understand that these topics can be difficult to listen to. So if this is something that might be too much for you, please skip ahead. But there was actually a bit more to Carrie's story than anyone knew. See, Carrie Stainer is actually the older brother of child abductee Stephen Stainer. And growing up, Stephen and Carrie were extremely close. They were the only two boys in the family with three other sisters. And according to Carrie's former classmate, Jack Bungart, he said Carrie loved his brother. He hung out with him constantly, played with him. Carrie felt like Stephen's protector. So when on December 4th, 1972, at the young age of seven years old when Stephen was kidnapped, Carrie undoubtedly felt like he had failed his brother and not protected him how he should have. That December 4th in 1972, Carrie's 
younger brother Stephen, was approached after school by a man named Edward Murphy. Edward told Stephen that he was collecting money for the church, and Stephen said, hmm, I think my mom might want to donate. So Edward offered to take Stephen home so that he could ask his mom to donate to the church. Instead, Edward brought Stephen to a man named Kenneth Parnell, a well-known pedophile. Parnell, along with Edward, took Stephen to a cabin in a place called Kathy's Valley, where they brainwashed him to believe that his parents no longer wanted him. They pretended to call his parents, pretending to be on the phone with them, and then would hang up and turn to him and say, yeah, I just asked them if they want you back, and they don't. You have to stay here with us because they don't want you anymore. So they convinced him that they wanted him to be their own son. And that even hits harder because he was of the belief that his parents said, no, thank you. Right. Yes. So when Stephen didn't return home from school that afternoon, his parents called the police and a large search took place for days, which turned into months, which turned into years. Stephen was not found for a long time. Meaning he was not alive. In most cases, that's what I find. I don't know. So for years, Kenneth took Stephen around California with him, acting as if Stephen was his son. During the day, Kenneth was a doting, caring father to Stephen. And during the night, he was sexually assaulting him. He told Stephen that his new name was Dennis Parnell, and he enrolled Stephen in school. Shockingly, Stephen actually did really well, despite the abuse that he was suffering from Kenneth at home. Years went by, and Stephen got straight A's. He did well in school. He was seemingly a... And an okay, happy child, which is mind-blowing to me that he could kind of shut that part of his life at home out. Well, on the outside, I'm guessing. On the outside, yes. He was seemingly happy, but why do you think that is? If he was getting all this awfulness and abuse, forget about that, not forget about, but in this case, forget about, quote-unquote, that his parents, he thought his parents didn't want him. He probably truly believed that. Well, then he felt indebted to this Kenneth. Like he, his parents didn't want him. Where was he going to go at seven years old? This Kenneth saved him, took him in, wanted him, brainwashed him. What is that called? Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm I don't inferring either. about that, but. Well, yeah, no, that's what it's called. And also I think like it's the school. I was thinking about school. He did very well, you said. Apparently. Well, his studies were one thing he could control. Yeah, he could escape from everything else through that yeah no that's probably right i have no idea i'm just trying to think it out not that it matters because it's awful awful but steven steven seemingly was doing to outside people doing okay and years and years went by and then suddenly steven was 14 and after being abused and manipulated by kenneth for seven years kenneth began to realize that steven was quickly becoming too old and too strong to continue being controlled. So Kenneth, he decided he would need to find someone else to kidnap and abuse. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to keep he's going to keep Stephen around because at this point they're he's family. His. Yeah, he's his son and Stephen mm-hmm. fully believes that at least as far as Kenneth or anyone else knows. Sure. As far as anyone sure. else knows or Kenneth knows, Stephen is Dennis Parnell. So in February of 1980, Kenneth kidnapped five-year-old Timothy White while he was walking home from school. And for the two weeks that followed, Stephen watched this poor little boy be abused by Kenneth until March 1st, 1980, when Stephen simply couldn't take it anymore. He waited until Kenneth was at work and then fled the house with Timothy. The two hitchhiked to Ukiah, California, where they made their way to the police station. Stephen told the police what happened to him and Timothy, and he also was able to remember and tell police that his real name was not Dennis, it was Stephen. He couldn't remember where he lived, who his parents were, or anything else, but he knew his name was Stephen. Shortly thereafter, he was reunited with his family, and after getting some time together, they held a press conference outside of the Stainer house, where everyone was so happy and ecstatic, never expecting to see Stephen again. That is, everyone except for Carrie. Carrie refused to smile for the photos. 
refused to partake in the happiness and the joy. And after so many years apart, the brothers who were once so close seemed to no longer be able to get along. Carrie later, much later, told a man named J.P. Miller, who was a filmmaker who wrote a screenplay about Stephen's abduction. Carrie said, We never really got along after he came back. All of a sudden, Stephen was getting all these gifts. He was getting all this clothing, getting all these this attention. I guess I was jealous. I mean, I'm sure I was. I was the oldest and all that. And then all of a sudden, that didn't matter. I got put on the back burner. I now, don't have any questions. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm processing. Yeah, it's a lot. So at the time, you know, you have to remember, at the time of Stephen's disappearance, Carrie was only 11 years old, and he was tortured by this disappearance. He, at a much later interview, said, I remember going out one night after Steve disappeared and wishing on a star that my brother would come home. Oh. I did that almost every single clear night from then on for seven years until he finally came back home. I wow. never did tell anybody about it, but I remish, remember wishing on a star every single night that my little brother would just be back home safely. Huh. Sad. So despite all of this kind of momentary fame that Stephen experienced when he returned home because he, he was famous for a moment. He rescued this five-year-old boy. Yeah. He escaped capture after seven years. It was just unheard of. Nobody ever survived something like that. Everyone thought he was he, dead, I of imagine. Course, absolutely. Or, like, not of wish, course. but thought. Yeah. yeah. So he was a little bit, um, you know, he had a, 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 a lot of attention. Hometown but, hero. Yes, absolutely. He was across, you know, magazines and newspapers and and good morning america and this and that mm. but he was still struggling he was struggling to adjust he was struggling to fit into his high school at home because he was bullied people made fun of him for the abuse that he had suffered because it was so clearly expressed in all of this press which is just horrible but over time he you know the fame died down he finished high school got on with his life Shortly after graduating high school, he eventually got married and had two kids. Oh. Yeah. Huh. He seemingly adjusted back into normal life unbelievably well. Like everything that you read about him with his wife and his kids, he was a great dad. He was loving. He was, you know, seemingly happy. Of course, no one's inside his head. Nobody knows. But Well, sure. But all, all people can take amazing. from is what they notice, what they see. Oh so God. from what people notice, he's doing okay. He's doing okay. And he was doing okay until 1989 when he was tragically killed in a motorcycle hit and run accident at the young age of 24. I mean. I know. Uh, there is no rhyme or reason. I already know that about the world and the universe but and how? life. Somebody survives all of that only to die in the most kind of random, tragic way like that. That just seemed like, I, when I was reading about this, I was like, yes, Stephen, good for you. You're, you're like, you recreated your life and that's so amazing and impressive. And, and then he died at 24. I mean, I have thoughts and theories, <sighs> but they're not warranted here, so it doesn't matter. Terrible. So as if the, the Stainer family hadn't endured enough tragedy, shortly after Stephen's death, there was an uncle who Carrie was actually very close with and was living with at the time, um, Jesse, Uncle Jesse, which I thought was funny. <laughs> All you 90s kids. Sorry, not appropriate for oh, those Whatever, John Stamos, come on. It's always appropriate, John Stamos, always. Yes, Uncle Jesse. Come on. So Carrie was living with Uncle Jesse, very close with him. And apparently um, Uncle Jesse had come home for, for lunch from his job as a dispatcher for a hay chopping operation when he was shot and killed with his own gun in his own home. But not by himself. It wasn't suicide. No, it was not. What the fuck? Yeah. And there was actually not much. I, I found a little bit more on that, but not much. And because this story is already so kind of complex, I'm I not going complex. I'm not I'm not going <laughs> deeper into that because there it, nothing more ever came of it. We'll that that was it. List. It was tragic. So as you can imagine, at this point, Carrie is just on the verge of breaking down like his brother is gone for seven years which i can only if you really get into the th thinking about what that would be like 
and I, I really can't there. imagine, but I like mean, to the best of my ability, I'm there. You know, as a kid, as an 11 year old kid, of course you miss your sibling. You're so sad. You're so worried. You're so concerned. But then, but then I'd imagine that the parents are really focused on that and torn up over that. He gets a little bit less attention. I mean, a lot bit less. Yeah. And like parents yeah. are having marital problems unless sure. they're crazy, like superheroes. Right. And, um, and then the brother comes back back for a moment mm-hmm. or a long moment whatever a few years uh, yeah, but yeah it's like oh it's just torture just torture also the unknown uh, we'll yeah. save it i'll save it somehow carrie had kind of spent most of his life keeping this inner tor- turmoil that he had been feeling since age 11 when his brother went missing and then his brother's gone 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 comes back and then things are okay and then his brother dies and then his uncle di- like but he's he seemed to most people around him kind of keep this anyone would understand to be just uh, depression, horror, anger, everything. He compartmentalized, it sounds like. He compartmentalized. But there were were some small signs along the way, and not many, but I did find one. One of his friends who grew up with Carrie in Merced, California, Mike Marchese, recalls that Carrie was quiet. He was introverted all throughout high school. Mike says he didn't notice anything particularly unusual about Carrie until one day in 1995. They were working together at a glass factory in Merced, and Carrie suddenly appeared to lose control of himself completely. Carrie allegedly told Mike that he felt like he wanted to drive his truck through the factory and office walls, kill his boss and all the employees, and then set the entire place on fire. Mike was scared by this because it was very specific and very angry. And he said to Carrie, I think you, maybe you should go talk to somebody, like go seek a little bit of help. Like this feels aggressive. Yes, exactly. And Carrie said, okay. And he took his friend's advice and he went to the hospital. But the hospital quickly referred him to group counseling and Carrie said, "Mm, no, not doing it. Wow, that's interesting because he, and I know this might sound weird, it doesn't sound like a serious threat, like I want to kill everyone, but it sounds like a threat, which should be taken seriously. Not that I think he was actually going to, well, I don't know, kill everyone. And also send him to the hospital. They should maybe admit him for a little bit of Mm. psychological eval. Yeah, and that would have been good. So before we... It's a lot of tragedy here, and we're going to get back to our victims of the story. But before we do, I'm I'm preemptively going to answer some questions for you. I don't know if you have them, but I thought I would answer them. I haven't. I mean, I probably have, but I've just pushed them back and pushed them back. Okay. Well, I thought I would just wrap up this section of the story by telling you what happened to Kenneth Parnell, Stephen's kidnapper, and then also the five-year-old Timothy White. So I forgot about Timothy White. I know. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So Kenneth Parnell was convicted soon after Stephen was, you know, broke free. Convicted on kidnapping and false imprisonment charges. He was sentenced to seven years in prison but only served five, which was less time than he actually had Stephen captive. Well, Uh, and also what about the sexual abuse and rape charges? Don't know. Those were never brought against him at this point. So then he was released back into the world. Oh, great. And quickly went back to doing exactly what he had been doing for years. He was caught again later, charged Mm -hmm. with attempting to purchase a child and attempting child molestation in 2004. And he was sentenced to 25 years to life. He died in jail in 2008 at the age of 76. Good riddance. I'll yeah, say it if you I want. want. No, I was gonna say good. And I was like, I wish he lived till 96. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'm not gonna say what I hoped, but I, I hope something. I agree. So Timothy White, the kidnapping victim, 
Aw. Was Sebi, a five-year-old. He was five. He was five. And he was 35 when he died. Suicide? No, he died April 1st, 2010 from a pulmonary embolism. Wow. I mean... That doesn't happen to many, I don't believe, 35-year-olds. Really, I, I just, I mean, like, I get goosebumps thinking about it because Timothy and Stephen were both taken by this man and both died very different ways, but very preempt, very early in life. Very young. Like, very young. Well, in pulmonary embolism, that is super early. I don't, I'm not a doctor, but like, that is early. So he had gone on to actually become a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy, and that's what he was doing. Um, when when he died. Oh, but that, I mean, I, I can see the connection there and I can also see why maybe whatever trauma and shit you already have in your body. Mm, and builds you, up. Well, it builds up and then you go to a position like that and I'm not saying this is bad of him. He was trying to do something that he was, he was passionate to about. Sure, sure. But like, oh gosh, this also tells me stress is a killer. Stress is a killer. We're going to get back to the question that I asked well, the question, I don't think I actually posed it as a question, but we're going to get back to something that I said before we started talking about Carrie, which was that it wasn't until Joie's beheaded body was recovered that f- police finally became suspicious of someone that would ultimately lead to justice for all four women. Right. So the question at hand is, how did finding her body lead to solving these murders? Especially because when police initially found Joie's body, they were adamant that the murders were not connected. The three women in February and her. FBI agent James Maddox said, we have absolutely no reason to believe there is a connection between the two cases. That's what he said at the time. And beyond that, the crime scenes and the crimes in general were pretty different. Joie's from Carol, Julie, and Sylvina's. Because unlike the killings back in February where there were virtually no clues mm-hmm. at all, yeah, Joie's murder was far messier. It appeared to have been not planned out as well. There was blood and a multitude of other clues that were left behind. But you're not willing to say those right now or they're just not pertinent? I'm going to say them. Right. But this that fact further pushed police to say like they're not connected. They're too different. Like what killer has this pristine kind of murders three people with no clues and then murders one person with tons of clues. That can't be. Well, and they're very different ways of murder. Or at least the two were burned. She was beheaded. Right. So like those are very different uh, modalities of killing. I like that. Yeah, no, that's right. Initially, police were tipped off to a possible suspect in Joie's case when witnesses claimed to have seen a baby blue and white scout car driving near her cottage on the day of the murder and we know that that's carrie stainer's car and it's a great car but we don't like you carrie stainer we do not and then when carrie didn't show up for work the next day authorities officially became a bit suspicious beyond that some of the clues that carrie had left behind they didn't know it was necessarily carrie at the time but there were footprints left behind near Joie's body. And there were distinctive tire tracks, which were quickly connected to his baby blue international scout because that scout had a different brand of tire on every single wheel. He had four different kinds of tires? He had four different ty- kinds of tires. And so that was a very unique tread pattern that was left near the scene of, well, whether it was the scene of the crime or just the dumping of the body, it was left near Joie's body. So these unique tire tracks, plus the witness saying that they saw this car near there, plus Carrie calling into work, investigators were like, we're going to look into him. We're suspicious now. But they had no idea that Carrie's potential involvement in Joie's murder would ultimately lead to justice for not only Joie, but also for the three other women who had been murdered in the park just months before. Truthfully, the FBI, like I said, they'd been reluctant to pin this on on Carrie or any one person because they believed that now no one person could have killed Julie, Carol, and Sylvina alone. They fully believed that the meticulousness, the lack of clues, the lack of fingerprints, the lack of evidence— it had to be more than one person. Mm. So they just, they weren't willing to believe that it was just one person. However, they brought Carrie in for questioning regarding 
Joie's murder because her body had actually been found just a few miles from El Portal, the town where Carol, Julie, and Sylvina had been last seen. Well, guys, if you want to find out what happened to Joie, Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, and how exactly Carrie Stainer was involved, you'll have to tune in next week to episode 18, part two of the Joie Armstrong story, because this story, as you probably know by now, is just way too long and intricate to try and shove into one episode. So we will have the conclusion for you next week and a little bit more information on some of the beginning parts of this story as well. So we hope you will tune in and join us and we will see you then. Thank you guys for listening. And since Jenna is not here to record this little ending, I will say her part for her and say good night and good luck and hug your loved ones. And we really appreciate all of you. Thank you for listening. See you guys soon. Bye. And if you want to see pictures of the victims, the murderers, and any additional related images, head over to our Instagram right now. Our handle across all social media platforms is death, then the letter X, and then Southwest spelled out. So D-E-A-T-H-X-S-O-U-T-H-W-E-S-T. Death. Southwest. Death by Southwest is a Cavalry Audio production. Hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Produced by Margot Carmichael. Associate produced by Jenna Schneider. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Audio editing and sound design by Revision Sound. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck.